This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And good morning. My name is Doug Dalvin. This is America's Web Radio, and welcome to the Prologue. Now, on this show, we introduce you to authors and artists you may not have heard of yet. Okay, now, I'm an author myself, and I hope you'll take time to take a look at my work on Amazon.com or even on my website, DougDahlgren.com. I'm very proud that you're listening, and if you'll allow me just a second, I'd like to extend a special welcome and thank you to our Armed Forces personnel stationed around the world. They're keeping us all here back home safe and sound. Don't ever forget them. Hearty thank you also goes out to those who are our first responders here at home, those police, fire, and rescue folks who rush to our aid when we need their help. We have much to be thankful for and many great people who put themselves on the line each and every day for us to ensure those things. Now, I'd like to say to all of you out there, if you or anyone you know would care to be a guest on a future program, please email me at Doug at DougDahlgren.com. Now, if you're listening to this, the spelling is right there for you. So, again, the email is Doug at DougDahlgren.com. I'd love to hear from you. Now, this hour, our book is on the subject of coming of age. There have been many books out there written about this, uh, some novels, some most notable like To Kill a Mockingbird, and then again, Solinger's Catcher in the Rye. Those are fiction, and uh, there's many others that are narratives, and most come from or offer quite different perspectives. But they all speak of that person who helped point the way, whether we liked it or not, that route to being a grown-up. Now, we're fortunate to have with us today a man who has written a terrific book on this subject. His personal account, his memoir of a special trip and a special person who changed his life for the better. The man is author Mr. Michael W. Paul. His book is The Bridge Over Cedar Creek, and this is your prologue. The year is 1958. A fatherless boy of 14 is coming of age in Florida on his own. A family friend from Colorado extends an invitation for the lad to come visit that state for the summer. Now, the visual beauty of Colorado is enough to distract anyone, let, a, let alone a youth who's there on his own. But the man behind the invitation had great plans and direction for this youth, including the building of a bridge, a bridge that stands to this day. Now, that summer taught our guest author many lessons, and above all, it taught him what it is to be a man. Please welcome with me my very good friend, Mr. Michael W. Paul. Good morning, Michael. How are you this morning? Well, I'm great. Good morning, Doug, and thanks for inviting me on your show. Wonderful to have you, really. Now, your story is about really how you got from point A, and, and point A is what you described as a dysfunctional childhood, to point B, point B being the man that you are today. And I want to just tell the listeners, from a, from a child with no father and no direction in life, you have become an Air Force veteran, a college graduate, you're married to the lovely Diane, you're a licensed pilot, you worked in a major insurance company until you started your own business, 
you're a sailor, you're a black belt in Taekwondo, and an equestrian who enjoys riding with his daughter. Now, for somebody that started out with little direction, that's quite a list of accomplishments. Would you uh, take a minute and fill us in on some of that? Well, it all started uh, in North Carolina, and my mother wound up in Asheville, the only place that the military military wives could could be give birth, and where I was born. And from that day on, it seemed like I traveled and moved and changed direction a lot of times. But uh, and a lot of people in my life had a great impact on it. It wasn't really until 1958 when I met Frank Koontz, the protagonist in my in my book, that, that I really came to understand what's what's important. And I think it's really interesting that the format of the show is conservative because Frank's philosophy at that time was, was just common sense, but what is today conservatism, and he truly did change my life, my life, excuse me. Well, now, a man's greatest accomplishment, and we mentioned it already, is his marriage. And how long have you and Diane been married? Just over 49 years. We celebrated our 49th anniversary in June. So, I think by anyone's, ride. yes, indeed, by anyone's measurement, that is that is quite an accomplishment for her anyway. Uh, I think you, you're rather lucky that she's put up with you this long, but anyhow. Uh, now, you are an author, and you have a very popular and meaningful book. It's a book about the bridge, and of course, we've already said that took you from where you were to who you are. Now, all this was made possible through a chance meeting with a very exceptional man. You mentioned his name, but share with us how you came to meet Frank Kuntz. Well, one one hot summer afternoon in Miami, Florida, with the Committee at about 100%. I was in the side yard trying to start an old baggage scooter that I had purchased for $40 from Eastern Airlines. And uh, it wouldn't start. It was flooded, apparently. Excuse me, I have a terrible, terrible phone call. And this, all of a sudden, I, I, I felt the presence of someone behind me. And this older man asked me, son, he said, do you think that language is going to get that motor scooter started? And evidently I've been uh, swearing, and with all the windows open in South Florida, I could be heard everywhere. And I was smart enough to recognize that he was an older man, and I said, no, sir, but it won't start. And that's where it began. And he reached down and turned the, a screw on the carburetor and stood with me there for a few minutes until we finally got it started, and even though it ran rough, he said, we should fix that machine, and that's where it began. We worked and fixed it over three months, rebuilt it ourselves, and during that period of time, we became to know one another, and he invited me to Colorado to work on a, on a ranch of his closest friend in uh, Kremlin, Colorado. And that's where it began. Say the name of the place again. Kremlin, K-R-E-M-L-I-N-G. And where is that near? It's not far from Glenwood Springs on the western slope of Colorado over, uh, over uh, through the Eisenhower Tunnel and over the pass. Okay. All right. Michael, would you tell the folks, as we're getting into this beautiful book, 
tell the folks where they can find and order their own copy of The Bridge Over Cedar Creek, would you? Sure, it's on Amazon.com and Kindle. Okay. Uh, do you have your own website? I, I honestly don't. I've I neglected it, and I have, well, I had it for a long time. I have neglected it, so but it, I do have a Facebook page, and, and um, the, the book has received now 41 five-star reviews. Or actually, four, uh, 37 out of uh, 41, the, the four that were four-star reviews, and it's has its own Facebook page with I received 189 likes by a lot of his readers, none of which are family, by the way. There may be one or two, but the the, uh, uh, the book has really taken off. And I, I found in, in, in looking through the uh, the contacts on Facebook that people have read it as far as Australia and, and even in Antarctica on Elephant Island. So I'm just amazed by the distance it's traveled and so pleased that the story is is being told. Well, it is a wonderful book, and it has uh, wide appeal because uh, folks like reading stories like this, and uh, they can relate to it. So uh, we just appreciate the effort you put into it. Now, that trip in 1958 was not really your first trip to Colorado, was it? No, it wasn't. I, I, I left. Uh, I'd never known my father, and, and, my, and his sister contacted me who just out of the blue the year before, and in a birthday card, sent a ticket to Denver on the Greyhound bus. So at 13, I, I left Miami and went to Denver and spent six weeks with my aunt in, in Denver, Colorado, and that was my first experience. I fell in love with Colorado in the West. Being out there, uh, like I alluded to in, in the opening, it's just absolutely breathtaking to somebody who hasn't experienced it before. How did uh, how did that strike you as a 14 or even a 13-year-old the first time you were out there? I was, I was overwhelmed. I mean, uh, you know, I I always loved horses and animals, and actually owned my own horse and bought one with my little lawn cutting business when I was 12 years old, and. Um, I dreamed, I've always dreamed about visiting a ranch. And when, that, when this proposal for me to travel to Colorado and work on a 120,000-acre ranch for the summer, it just overwhelmed me. It turns out I didn't work on the ranch, but I, I did visit it, and that's a part of the story, and it's a, it's a good part of the story. Now, you've already mentioned that you never knew your father. Uh, what do you know of him? Well, I met him when I when I returned from from uh, military overseas in, during the sixties. He uh, met me uh, at the San Francisco airport, a bus terminal. I've forgotten which now, but the funny, the interesting thing about it, we looked much alike. I mean, both dark hair, dark eyes, tall, thin. He looked me right in the eye and walked away and asked some other guy who was actually in uniform. I was out of uniform. If I see it was Michael Paul. So that's how close we were. So we spent a week together, and it was an interesting week. He was not a man of many words, but I came to know him as a, just a nice guy. He maybe lived next door to somebody you could share a beer with and have a little conversation with. But I never came to know him as a father. I came to know Frank, the protagonist in my book, as, as a father figure. Actually, I think he was the first 
he was the first man who ever felt a beard, and I didn't ever feel it again until I felt it, until I had one of my own. It was a remarkable man, remarkable guy. It's a great story. Not because I wrote it, just because it is. It's just what happens if someone reaches out to you, and, uh, and you're wise enough, and, and uh, not smart alecky, and you, and you accept it. Now, I want to say something here, folks. Um, Michael W. Paul is not only a good author, he's quite a trooper. He's coming off a really bad uh, sinus cold and uh, is, is probably holding his breath to try to communicate with us today, so I hope you'll excuse some of the uh, interesting sounds that are coming through on this thing. But this man is really toughing it out to be here, and we thank him for, for coming on the show this morning. Now, your mom raised you to that to that age, but your mom had her own set of problems. What do you care to share with us about those? Well, my mother was a wonderful person, very smart, not a well-educated person. I think she attended third grade, but she uh, had had some issues in her life and turned to alcohol, and the, and the alcohol uh, overcame her. So I wound up spending most of my time in my summers and my times uh, growing up in foster homes or with my uh, relatives. And, uh, and with that, we're gonna we're gonna let you get a sip of water while we take a break, Mike. Uh, okay, listen, this, this is the America's Web Radio. My name's Doug Dahlgren. We're on the Prologue. Our guest this morning is Michael W. Paul, and we will be back in just a few moments. From Doug Dahlgren an action series that grabs you and won't let go. Four members of Congress all die within months. Each death appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary war heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search uncovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun, Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, in Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And we are back. My name again is Doug Dahlgren. You're listening to the Prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest today is author Michael W. Paul, and he's here toughing it out through a cold. His book, The Bridge Over Cedar Creek, is one of these memoirs. It's a coming-of-age book that is just a great read and something that people all over the world have proven that they can relate to. Now, we have been getting some of the background on this, how he met his protagonist, and uh, we were talking about your mom and that your mom had uh, some problems with alcohol. Uh, how did she feel about you going to Colorado all by yourself at the age of 14? 
Actually, I think she felt relieved because her, she uh, she struggled. And she was a single parent, and uh, we had very little money, very little, very, very little to uh, amuse me. So she would often be off working while I was at home, and sometimes till late at night. So she she felt like maybe the presence of a of another man in my life might make a difference, and uh, and it really and it did. Now, you uh, have already mentioned that she was a smart lady, and uh, there's a quote that you attribute to her from the book, and uh, the quote goes as follows, I shot a man, so I can't vote. Now, that seems rather odd. Would you set that up and explain to us the context of that quote? Yeah, that was interesting. She was a very, very bright, bright woman, although she'd only attended through the school for the third grade. She become a registered realtor, and she uh, she she worked at a number of different number of different occupations, and she had a really quick mind. She wrote volumes of poetry, and she loved to write. She just was a, a fascinating gal. She wrote besides horses with for other people, and she, she uh, uh, one night, uh, late afternoon, she went to the bank to make a deposit, and she was at the uh, outdoor teller, I believe. And uh, this disreputable-looking man came up to her and said, Lady, uh, uh, who are you going to vote for? And, and she looked at him, and she, and she didn't feel real comfortable with his presence. And so she said, well, mister, I'm going to tell you something. I can't vote. I killed a man. And, of course, he turned on his heels and left right away. But uh, it was just a low down, about five foot two. And I could just see her doing it. Uh, that freckled face, red head. Looking the guy in the eye and staring him down. She was, she was of, course, of course, she was kidding, but still, it was a pretty good pushback uh, <laughs> yeah, against uh, against somebody trying to pressure her in, in, in an electrical. Excuse me, an electoral. Today, it's about the same thing: electoral and electrical. But uh, right. you know, you can get shocked pretty quick. But anyhow, it was that was a good comeback. Now, we've got you on a Greyhound bus at 14 years old. And you describe all of this. You describe the trip very well. Um, you're alone, but really you're not. You meet this lady who's sitting there with a bowl of ice cubes. Uh, tell us why somebody would bring a bowl of ice cubes on a Greyhound bus. Well, I was just, uh, it was in the middle of the night, sometime probably after midnight, I'm guessing, to 1 or 2 o'clock at night. And we stopped at a rest area, uh, a place to pick up passengers in a, in a very large black lady boarded with her teenage daughter. The bus was pretty much empty. I guess she thought I'd probably be someone interested to, interesting to sit with, so she sat next to me with this bowl of ice. But she'd obviously ridden this little local bus before because it was a local and not the, not the long-distance bus. All the windows were open. It was probably 95 degrees outside, 100% humidity. And she had this bowl of ice that she sat there crunching to cool. That was her, her personal air conditioning system. And then I understand you guys had quite a conversation for a number of hours. Uh, we did. And, and when she finally got off the bus in Shreveport, um, I'd never really known a, a black person. Of course, in those days we said Negroes, but uh, I'd never really known or spoken to a black person. We had a, an aunt of mine who I lived with on occasional summers. I had a, a maid who I really liked and enjoyed. This was one of the very first I'd had a, a genuine conversation with, and found out that folks are just folks, no matter where you are, who you are. 
And then when she left, we were, we were friends. She was amazed by this youngster traveling from Miami, Florida, you know, in a, in a, meeting up in the middle of the night in a small Louisiana town. Now, the, the bus trip overall was, was over 50 hours getting you to the, uh, where did you get, end up, Denver? Uh, were you ever anxious, or can we even use the word, were you afraid at all of being by yourself in that situation? I don't think I was ever afraid. Um, I, I had a couple, a couple of incidents that are described in the book where you might, that you might find interesting, but um, I won't describe them because they're a, a good part of the book, a good an interesting pricey anyway, insight into what it's like for a youngster traveling across the country by himself. But things haven't changed very much since the 50s. It's just that they're more public today. But we meet all kinds of people, good people and bad people, frightening people. Well, it really wasn't frightening. I guess I didn't know any better. I only being 13, 14. Now, there's many characters that you describe in this book. Uh, can we go over a few of them? Well, who was who was Buster? Well, Buster was one of my very best friends. I had two or three, and all of them had stories of their own. Buster, by the way, has gone on to, 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 to uh, live an exceptional life and has been financial, not only financially but uh, personally very successful. And he he uh, he was actually Frank's um, friend. His his aunt, who, who he was being raised by, his father gave him away when he was younger, uh, knew Frank when she was a youngster in Colorado, and that's how I came to meet Frank. So he, at that time, he was one of my best friends. I had a couple of others. Jimmy Gallego, who's, who's spoken out in the book, mother was a stripper, and we had a, a, <laughs> a really good and interesting uh, relationship, and then I had a couple of others, all of which Latchkey, latchkey kids like myself, and you could we could literally stay out all night and do whatever we wanted. So it's not like we had to be home when the streetlights came on. Okay, now Michael W. Paul, if you would please tell our audience again where they can find and order the bridge over Cedar Creek. You can find it on Amazon.com or Kindle. Kindle, I believe, is only two dollars and ninety-nine cents, and Honestly, I'm not sure the exact price on Amazon, but it's well worth a read. I think it's ten ninety nine. And as he said earlier, you can also find Michael on Facebook, and you can send him a message. And uh, do you have any books available for autographs and mailing out from home? Absolutely. Anyone interested, okay. I'd be delighted. Okay. All right. Again, that book is The Bridge Over Cedar Creek. Now, you traveled to Colorado for that summer in 1958, the summer of the bridge. But your life after that was so busy, and there were so many accomplishments that we've already listed. It had to be just an extremely fast-paced life. Something had to have come along and got you thinking about this whole story and got you thinking about writing a book. Do you recall exactly what that was? You know, honestly, Doug, I'm not, I'm not certain what prompted me to do it. I, uh, I wanted for my children to know and understand uh, Frank and um, my experience in Colorado that summer. So I began by writing a, 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 a few chapters. 
And once I did, and we were my my wife, she said, gee, that's, that's, that's good. You're, you're, you're a very entertaining and interesting writer. You ought to continue. So I can write another chapter and another third chapter. And before I knew it, I finished about 350 pages. And, um, and there it was, the bridge over Cedar Creek. It just evolved. Now, as with mine, I know your wife, Diane, was very supportive in this effort. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about how she backed you up with this. Well, she's backed me up with everything in this life. I mean, that's why we were married for 49 years. A lot of my friends suggested if I hadn't married Diane, I wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> but in any event, she, uh, she, she read and, and uh, edited each chapter. Uh, she gave me advice on on the syntax and, and some of the other issues. She also, you know, she just described what things meant to her, and um, and we we kind of did it together. So now back back into the story a little bit. Uh, we've got you getting off the bus in Denver, and uh, you meet up with Buster and Frank, and you're at Frank's place in Colorado. Now tell us again. Just you know, logistically, where is Frank's place there in Colorado? Well, actually, I didn't get off in Denver. Denver is just kind of a staging area, and then I took a smaller bus from Denver, Denver to a small town uh, in Loveland. Like it's pronounced L-O-V-E-L-A-N-D. But when I came to Loveland, I arrived in Loveland as we circled the block to to uh, to stop for the uh, to disembark. Frank and, and another older man were standing along the curb, so we met there. But actually, Buster did not. Um, uh, I didn't meet Buster there until several several months later. He came out with his aunt, and we spent a week together picking cherries in Fort Collins, which is a small college town. Well, it's no longer small, but was in a very small college town north of Loveland, and that, that's described in the book. And it was an interesting experience for a, a youngster who's in who never really works that hard. We arrive at daylight and we leave at dusk, and we would be absolutely exhausted. We couldn't become a lifetime experience. I couldn't remember. Now, uh, the areas out there, everything, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but did it have that Old West flavor? all the areas, the towns, and the settings? Well, many of them did. Of course, Denver was just another big city, but many of the small towns did. Uh, Loveland, the small town where, where, where the book occurred, and oh, that's not where it actually occurred. It occurred up in the up in the canyon in the mountains. It was just three or 4,000 people. You could end up just extending maybe a mile outside of the downtown area, and uh, if they did have that, that western, open, spacious, blue skies, uh, sort of look and appeal. There weren't any cavalry horses or water troughs, but uh, it, it 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 was interesting. It's nothing like Florida, nothing like I'd experienced. Quite a difference in elevation too. What what was the elevation where you were? In Cedar Cove, it was just a little above five thousand feet, almost. It's closer to 6,000 feet. So just over a mile, then. 
Yes, sir. Yeah, it was, and it was always the days were warm. I mean, there's a bit there's probably as warm as as uh, Georgia in terms of temperature, but the humidity was absolutely negligible. But in the evenings, oh, as, the, as the evenings came on, you'd have to find a jacket. And for a Florida boy, I didn't even own a jacket. So when I got there. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to we're we're going to have to take another break here, Mike. We'll get back to this in just a minute. This is the prologue. We're having the pleasure of speaking with Michael W. Paul about his great book, The Bridge Over Cedar Creek, and we'll be back after these messages. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. From Doug Dahlgren, an action series that grabs you and won't let go. Four members of Congress all die within months. Each death appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary war heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search uncovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun, Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, in Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And once again, we are back. My name again is Doug Dahlgren. We're here on the prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest this morning is the author of The Bridge Over Cedar Creek, Mr. Michael W. Paul. Uh, He's telling us about a trip in 1958 where he went out as a 14-year-old boy to stay with a gentleman who had some very specific rules and some guidance on how to become a man, how to become a grown-up. Now, as we said, Mike, staying with Frank Kuntz had some special rules to follow. Um, Tell us how somebody could actually get their plate screwed upside down on the table. (laughs) And he would, uh, if you overslept, which I did often because I had my rules going up, and you didn't show up for breakfast. He he would. His suggestion was, if you're not here in five minutes, I'm going to screw your your dinner plate upside down on the table. And he he would show up in the morning about six thirty every morning. I was usually not in, 
in bed by 6.30 uh, in my prior life, and uh, he, uh, he would knock on the door, which I would frequently lock because I was afraid of the dark, and say, okay, get your butt up here and let's have breakfast. Those bears aren't going to get you. Just get up here and eat. And he, he had a lot of a lot of prescriptions, a lot of things you needed to do to meet his test. But he was a remarkable guy and had a lot of wisdom. Uh, the bridge over Cedar Creek is is really more than a metaphor. It is a real bridge. Uh, tell us how it came about and how you guys actually put this bridge together. Okay, sure. Uh, the, uh, the, the coal, the Cedar Cove where Frank lived, was accessed by fording a little creek. There was a concrete pad that went through the creek, but in springtime, it would, uh, the creek would rise. Excuse me, I'm sorry. The creek would rise, and it was, it was dangerous to uh, the residents, and some of many of them are older will be stuck inside the coal for days, and if there's a kind of medical emergency, uh, they couldn't get out. So Frank decided that he wanted to build a small bridge over the creek. And that's one of the things that he told me when we arrived that we were going to do is we are going to build this bridge. Essentially, what, how it came about, we bought 50 steel, 55-gallon drums, which I was charged to take one end out with a coal chisel, and we laid them in the, in, the, in the bed of the little creek and river. And then we filled the voids and interstices with, with gravel and rock. And we put concrete and made a, a deck. And then it became access, the access to coal. And it's stood since, it has stood since 1958 until now. Yet the entire coal, unfortunately, has been destroyed by two devastating floods. It's all that remains. It's amazing. It's amazing how that little bridge is still there. It really is. Uh, how long did the construction take you guys? Yeah, I'm thinking it must probably have taken a week, seven days at the most. And all of uh, every bit of this was by hand, was it not? All by hand. We dynamited some rock and boulder, and we moved rocks with shovels and wheelbarrows and trucks, and we... Uh, of course, the concrete, we had the concrete trucks come in and pour the deck. Now, I've, I've got to offer some full disclosure here. Uh, the Pauls and my wife and I have gotten to be fairly good friends over the past year, and my wife, Donna, and I had the extreme pleasure of traveling to Colorado about five, six weeks ago with Michael and Diane, and we actually got to go to and see the bridge. Michael... Before I go into it, tell me what that was like for you to be there on the bridge. Uh, it was a little bit underwater that day, but it was still there, as you said. Tell us yeah. tell us how you felt. Well, it was very moving, I can tell you that. It brought tears to my eyes just to, just to think that 55 years ago, this stranger and I built that bridge, and, and, it, and, it, and that summer and that experience changed my life. And well, it was the bridge over the Cedar Creek. The title is metaphorical in that sense. There is actually a physical bridge, and the reality is the bridge is still standing, and that's what's so amazing to me because it's just a little concrete and steel bridge spanning a 30-foot drainage creek, 
and you're all around it has been devastated by the floods from 100-year floods. So it was moving. It truly was. That entire area has had uh, historic flooding over the past uh, decade, really, and some, I believe we were told, were just within the last three years that actually had caused deaths right in the immediate area where that bridge is. Um, the bridge may or may, I don't think there was any housing across that creek when you guys built it, but now that bridge actually was the uh, access point for, looked like three homes over there, am I correct? No, actually, there were 30 homes back in there. They've all been destroyed by the flood. The only three remaining are Frank's house, which is down in the cove, and those two that you happen to see. Now, were they there when you built the bridge, or they have, they were built since? No, they were built. All of them were built before I built the bridge. There were 30 homes back there. That's why it was so important that Frank built a bridge, because none of the residents, a lot of them were summer residents, but a lot of us, those few that were in there in the winter, couldn't get out because, as you could see, this uh, when we visited, the times the water rise and you couldn't get in and out of the cold. But, oh, yeah, there, okay. were 30, there, were, there were 30 homes in there, and they were some of them were built around the turn of the century, like Frank's. And uh, Frank's house actually was a motorcycle barn. He was a Harley Davidson distributor in the little town of Loveland, and a, a motorcycle salesperson. And, the people who would travel to Estes Park, the resort community above the cove, would stop along the way and, and drink root beer on his, from, from his, his mother's root beer stand and leave the motorcycles and spend the night sometimes in that in Frank's then motorcycle shed. He converted it to a house in the 40s sometime, I believe. Well, let's stay with Frank Coons for a minute. Come back and tell us a little bit more. What, what exactly, what type of man was Frank Coons? Well, he was a self-made sort of guy. He was a world-class motorcyclist, sidecar racing, uh, sidecars, set some records up Pikes Peak in the 20s and around Colorado that I'm not sure have been broken today. He uh, he loved it. He, he, like my mother, had uh, were very poorly educated. He, he, just, he didn't, uh, he didn't uh, enjoy school, but he loved anything mechanical, so he left school after the third grade and went to work with it for his father in the motorcycle shop, and then uh, during the First World War, he was actually a motorcyclist uh, in sidecars in, uh, in the war. So he knew his way around engines. This goes back to that little Cushman scooter that you were trying to get cranked. Uh, seems like everything's falling to place there, wasn't it? Right. Hey, that's, that was his interest. He, he loved anything mechanical. He'd never had a child. He and his wife, by what time I would have met him, they probably married 40, 40 years, but they never had any children. But there was a man who's described in the book named Chile, who was a Hispanic youngster who he found in one of his feedlots. His, Chile's parents um, literally left him. And I think they had like nine other children, and and they had to move on to. to uh, they were immigrant sending uh, crops, and when they did, somehow they got him. And so Frank found him in this feedlot and and raised him. And he was—he's another remarkable story. I mean, he became the Chrysler Plymouth dealer there in that small town, and, and unfortunately died of cancer very young. But he was a 
was remarkable young man. He lived alone when he was much younger than I was. So it's a, it's a story in itself. You mentioned Frank and his rules. Uh, he was he was really a tough, not rough and gruff, but a tough guy. Tell us the story of the sprinklers. What what transpired there with the sprinklers? Well, he when I, the first day I had arrived, the first thing he asked me to do, and this was a working trip. He put me to work the moment I got off the bus, literally. I mean, so the first day I arrived, perhaps the next morning, he uh, he he set me to cutting the lawn. And he had a big yard, I'd say four or five acres, but uh, the, the lawn around the home had a, a newly installed sprinkler system. And one of the caveats was to be very careful because he had just installed a system and, and be careful of the sprinkler head. So, of course, I cut the the, uh, the larger part of the property, and then I came back to the lawn around the house. And the very first thing I did is I ran over the sprinkler head and, and cut it uh, cut it off. So when I saw it, I threw it away, thinking that, well, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And that, that afternoon, we went to town, and he brought back a device that he needed to put on his pump so that he could start his sprinkler system again. And I hadn't told him that I'd cut off the sprinkler head. Well, of course, you can expect what happened when he turned on the pump. He had a guy who heard it, but he tall. And here's my second day take them all that way on a bus, and he just uh, lambasted me. He said, you know, one thing I expect is honesty in my my home, and when you do something, I expect you to take responsibility for it, and if you can't do that, you're not welcome here, essentially. You know, he did say he thought I was a nice kid and good kid, and he wanted me to be there, but I needed to learn that it was up to me. It wasn't up to him. So, anyway, I right. went and got but embedded in all that lambasting was the opportunity to correct what you had done, wasn't there? Well, he 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 not only gave me the opportunity, he insisted. He said, "If you're <laughs> going to get back, I went and grabbed my suitcase and pulled it out of my bedroom and put it out on the sidewalk as I'm going home." And he said, "Well, you can do that. If that's what you want to do. But the first thing you're going to do is you're going to repair what you damaged." So we set out to repair the sprinkler and. He helped me put it back together, and once we did put it back together, he went down and turned on the water. Of course, I was standing right in the field of sprinklers, and I got soaking wet, and he looked up and laughed, and I laughed, and I dragged my suitcase back into the bedrooms and stayed there for the rest of the summer. <laughs> it's just a good, he was just a man who, who felt like you should take responsibility for your acts and, and make no excuses. That was his favorite saying. Folks, we're here today, we're talking to Michael W. Paul about his great memoir of growing up in the late 50s, The Bridge Over Cedar Creek. This is America's Web Radio. We will be back in just a few minutes. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. 
Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hi, I'm Ray Bowman, hoping you'll join us each Friday at noon for our new show, Food and Farm, brought to you by FeedStuffsFoodLink.com, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And good morning once again. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here on America's Web Radio with Mr. Michael W. Paul. Now, we're here on the day before the 4th of July holiday, and folks, we appreciate every one of you who are out there listening. We've been talking about a very interesting book, a great read. It's a quick read for almost 300 pages. It's a memoir of growing up in the late 50s in Colorado and how a man took a young directionless boy, really, of 14, under his wing and showed him what it was like to be a grown-up and what it was like to actually have responsibility and be a man. Uh, Mike's been telling us about the rules that Frank has. Uh, There are also just many, many terrific characters in there. You mentioned Chili. Uh, Tell us about Melvin. Would you, Mike? Sure. Melvin was a a man, I'm guessing, somewhere probably in his early to mid-30s, who had wanderlust. He uh, had been, excuse me, he'd been in the in the uh, Korean War and been in some pretty serious uh, combat and and had some distress from that. And he came back and to the United States, and he just decided to wander. And he would show up at Frank's occasionally. And there's one story I won't uh, tell it in, in there about something that occurred, but he taught me how to fly fish, and he is a remarkable fisherman. It, it's, it's almost as if he called and they came, because he would step out into the Big Thompson River in his waders, and he would fill up his creel in 10 minutes, and I would still be trying to uh, disentangle and untangle all of the flies and line that I had gotten into the brambles along the riverside. So it was an interesting bird and just one of the many characters I met that summer. In Colorado, Mike mentions Colorado. Um, I, re- I read this book, and of course, I've, I've known him and Diane now for a little over a year. And hearing them talk about Colorado, folks, a lot of you have an advantage. You've been there. I had not until about six weeks ago. And for those out there who are in the shape I was, I want to tell you, you really have to figure out some excuse to go visit, and you're going to need at least a week. And that's just to get to where you can stop standing around with your mouth open. The beauty out there is just absolutely 
awe-inspiring. We were there in late May. We went through a snowstorm on the way from the Denver airport over to Glenwood Springs. Glenwood Springs is basically a western town and uh, has all the trappings of that. We stayed in a 127-year-old hotel. I'm close on the math, but uh, the Hotel Colorado, uh, just beautiful. And all of this stuff was set up, of course, by our tour guides, the Pauls, who knew their way around and have been there many, many times. But uh, the place, I'm just telling you, it's gorgeous. And you have to picture all of this stuff that Mike's writing about happening in this setting. Uh, Glenwood Springs is one area. I believe that uh, Cedar Creek is actually over near Estes Park, which is another gorgeous area right at the base of the Rocky Mountain National Park. And, again, I could babble for hours on this uh, just having been there for a week. So those of you who have experienced it know uh, but I want to tell you, folks, buy this book. Get this book somehow, Kindle or whatever, because all of this beauty is is mentioned and is in there, and you have to imagine it while you're reading the stories that Mike tells us about his growing up as a 14-year-old. Now, Mike, uh, The Bridge Over Cedar Creek is a terrific work. What other works do you have, and I'm talking writing, what other books do you have that you're working on currently? Well, actually, I'm working on two. Uh, the first I started after Bridge Over Cedar Creek is a book entitled Just Cause, and it's about Miami Mafia in the early 50s. And uh, it's just it's just an interesting read. I'm about a third of the way into it. And then one afternoon I stopped in Savannah to the 8th Air Force Museum, and because I'm a pilot, I always have loved flying. Actually, my first word is it. As a child, according to my baby book, was plain. I, 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 I learned about the heroics of the 8th Air Force over Germany in World War II. So my second book, and I'm about a third of the way into that, is uh, entitled Wild Horses, and it describes a, 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 a young pilot, really prodigy, who'd come from a wealthy mining family in Nevada who is the first officer and pilot of a B-17, story told by his co-pilot, who uh, uh, was there to experience all of what they experienced along the way. Tells a little about the life the life's history of the pilot and the co-pilot. And uh, This is an interesting read. It's something that uh, is fictional almost entirely, but... It's uh, it's been fun to do and been fun to research. Find out the uh, find out about the heroics of our military. Tell us a little bit about your research. How do you how do you go about researching material for a novel? Well, I just buy as many books as I can by people who had the experience. You know, uh, buy and, and get out of the library. And uh, I can't even I can't even as I think stand here thinking about it. I can't even give you all the titles, but. I've probably read 15 or 20 different books on the subject with with regard to uh, the B-17 experience in World War II. Masters of the Air is about a 1,000 pages, which is really phenomenal. Another book which I recommend, I'd recommend to anybody to read, is The Fall of the Fortresses, which is almost poetic. It's so beautiful. And I probably read 15 or 20 and, this, and taken, trying to get some insight into what it must have been like to know that every time you, you, you started that engine, and as a pilot, I'd start an engine every once in a while, uh, to know exactly 
uh, to know that you may not be coming back. Because every time I start an engine, I know I'm coming back. I don't care if it's raining. I don't care what's happening. I generally uh, understand that, that I'll be back on the ground having a martini in a couple of hours. But those kids, and they were kids, many of them were only 19 years old, were flying some pretty heavy iron over a, um, a credible target. And it's just a fascinating story. I'm so, so very proud of that, that uh, heritage. Excuse me. Uh, sure. Now, when you've gathered all this research material and you've, you've read all these books and you have all this info in your head, are you a disciplined writer? Do you restrict yourself to sitting there for a certain number of hours each day or a certain number of words? How do you go about it when you're working? I'm the most undisciplined writer you'll have ever met. And you know there's two schools of thought. There's those that are disciplined and they sit down for eight hours a day or six hours or whatever it requires and do an outline. I just start writing and whatever flows. I believe it comes from God, however you might define him. And uh, it's just something that I enjoy doing. It's just cathartic. So, no, I'm not very disciplined at all. And I need to become more disciplined, to be totally honest, because I've enjoyed doing what, what I've done. Well, we we certainly look forward to uh, Wild Horses and uh, whichever order that you finish the other two books. But we look forward to more from Michael Paul. Listen, is there anything that uh, that we've left out, anything you'd like to add this morning before we close? No, not really, other than just thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak to you about um, my book and about Frank and about a very personal experience that was uh, in a book that was written from the heart. I, I truly appreciate it. It means a lot. Well, I've got one more question about Frank, but before we get to that, how about any hellos or just what they call shout-outs, anybody you want to say hi to this morning? No, not really. There's so many people in my life that deserve a shout-out. I don't want to offend anyone, but of course my wife, yeah, hopefully she's listening. But uh, Okay. Well, let's, let's go to Frank again before we close. Uh, you mentioned in the book Life Lessons and Frankisms things like cherry-picking. Uh, this is your time. Tell us about those Frankisms. Well, Frank had a lot of little abra- aphorisms that he that I didn't know what an aphorism was until probably I was 45 years old. But it, 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 a lot of these little sayings that that uh, I would carry around with me. And as I raised my children, I used to have a uh, one of them on our refrigerator, and it said, Action, not words. And I think that probably caused me more difficulty with my children than anything I could have done. And uh, because I, I, I expected them to not tell me how great they were. I wanted to see how great they were. I wanted them to see it. And that's what Frank expected. Talk, cheat, brother. And so as a result, I had grown up pretty strong and pretty... And, and could become pretty responsible. And I think Frank probably had something to do with that, but... I'm not sure they appreciate it all the time, but that's. I'm, know, I'm sure that he. I'm sure that he did. Uh, well, it sounds like quite a man. It sounds like quite an experience, and we uh, we appreciate you putting it down in words for us. Again, folks out there, we've been talking to Michael W. Paul about his terrific memoir, The Bridge Over Cedar Creek, and as he's told us, you can get this through Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle. And also, if you look for Michael W. Paul on Facebook, you can message him and see about getting an autographed copy uh, sent to you 
through that venue. So, again, we appreciate you very much, Michael, for being with us this morning. We know you've been fighting off a cold and distress trying to speak. So, partner, thank you again for being here. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. And, folks, listen, that's going to pretty well bring it to an end for this morning. I certainly hope you've enjoyed this edition of the prologue with the bridge over Cedar Creek. Now, I want you to remember that this program is available in podcast form, as are all the programs here. Just simply go to the archive section at americaswebradio.com, look for the prologue, and you'll be able to pick out the show you'd like to listen to. Now, for this morning, this is Doug Dahlgren for myself and my guest, and also for our station owner and engineer, Mr. David Moxley. I want to say have a great day, have a great Fourth of July weekend, and I hope you'll tune in next week. Take care of yourselves. Good day. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.